0: Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. If you haven't noticed um, this morning, the Baals are back with us for the first time with their new daughter. We're excited for them, the arrival of this new little one. And uh, also see Alice Robertson trying to hide from me over here with her son and daughter-in-law. Alice, what a treat to have you with us today. We love seeing your face. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Acham, and Acham the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word even genealogies, would you cause us to see all that you intend for us to understand from a list of names, to see who Christ is, to see that he came as a person in history, to understand all that you had been doing, and all that you are doing, and all that you will do in redemptive history, that we may worship you and give you glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I know for many of you that's a strange passage. Let's see if we can unpack it a bit. We're going to go through Matthew this Advent season. We haven't done the Gospel of Matthew. We've looked at, at uh, pieces. Uh, but this year we're going to go through Matthew's recounting of the coming of Christ In this season, we will look, to beginning with today, the person of Christ, followed by the promise, the praise, the persecution, and the protection of Jesus. Yes, there's something in pastor's DNA that at times we can't help ourselves with alliteration. Uh, We will look at these five areas that Matthew focuses in on in the story of the coming of Christ. And even though Christ's birth is familiar to us, And this is always a challenge, and I confess this at the beginning every year, both at Christmas and at Easter, that there's this pressure—it's self-imposed. None of you are are saying things to me that make me feel this way, but it's this external pressure or internal pressure that um, you know you just think you have to do something different, that you have to be creative, and that you have to come up with something that no one's ever heard. We do well to remember. We do well to go back and consider again. Listen to R.C. Sproul, what he says about Advent. He writes, The Advent season is that time when we seek to, in a manner of speaking, mute our memory of what has already happened, that we might brighten our joy that it happened. We leave the already of his Advent to taste the bitter of the not yet. We, in short, go back, that we might look forward to his coming. And so that's what we're doing. We're going back to remember, to consider to taste a bit of the bitterness of the waiting, the longing for the the one to come, the Redeemer. Since we're going to follow Matthew's gospel, I want to refresh us a bit as to who Matthew was. You remember Matthew was a tax collector. What do we think of tax collectors? Bob Hogan's not here this morning. I don't know if any of you, if, if any of the others, or uh, anyone else, has ever worked for the IRS. This is not personal, but most of us just don't like to pay taxes. There's something in it, and and if you've had a teenager, if you've watched a young person get their first job and open their first paycheck, and in horror discover, wait a second, where's all my money? They know how much they're supposed to be paid per hour. They know how many hours they've worked, and the check doesn't add up, and they feel robbed. Well, tax collectors were disliked for the same reason in Matthew's day, but there was more. They detested the tax collectors in Matthew's day more because tax collectors took more than they were supposed to take. There was the set rate that Rome had established to give in taxes, Uh, But they took more. They robbed the people. Everyone knew they were doing it. They made a nice living doing it. But they had the power of the Roman sword behind them, and so it was pointless to try and protest. And there were almost certainly kickbacks flowing to the soldiers to ensure that payments came through promptly and without question. But there was another layer of disdain toward Matthew because he was a Jew. He was a Jewish tax collector for the Romans. That meant he had partnered with occupying Rome to take from his own people the taxes that were due. And this made him a betrayer or a turncoat. At least this is how many of the people would have felt toward him, that you would work against your own people in partnership with the occupying force. And yet Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple. Another trophy of his grace. And something that ought to resonate with us, because all of us have been traitors as well. We have all been traitors before God. We have all been his enemies. And yet, even while we were his enemies, God sent his son to die for us, to buy us back from sin and death, to bring us back from the lostness that we were in, and be made his friends just like Matthew. God not only redeems Matthew, but he uses his past and weaves it into this new story that he's about to tell. This is important for us to remember, that God doesn't waste our days, our moments, even the hardships that we go through, but he often takes them and weaves them into a new story that is beyond our imagination. Matthew, because of his work as a tax collector, knew numbers, he knew math. He knew people. He knew stories. He had connections. He had access to records, including genealogies. Further, Matthew understood the significance of numbers in Jewish culture. What certain numbers mean. Now, we've just finished our study in Revelation, and so we have some bearing on this. We understand that certain numbers represent things. And Matthew weaves all of this together in his gospel account. To tell the story of the coming of Jesus, today we're looking at this genealogy. This is a passage that many of you, if you were reading through Matthew, would probably—if you didn't skip it altogether—and I say you as if I haven't done that. Um, this is—I mean—we see lists of names, and we're like, "Because who wants to even try and pronounce these names? Let alone try and figure out what does this mean for my life today?" And yet here it is, part of God's word. And what we find in this is it tells us, tells us a number of things. It tells us who Jesus is as a person. But it also tells us what God has been doing throughout redemptive history. Before we look at those particulars, though, look at how the genealogy is structured. It begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. For this and a number of other reasons, most scholars agree that Matthew's intended audience were Jews. He was writing that they might understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Where in Luke's gospel, the other gospel that has a genealogy, was written primarily for Gentiles. And Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Here, Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham. Another thing that you may notice is that there are three groups. And verse 17 tells us, unless you wanted to count for yourself that there are 14 generations in each group. Now, that doesn't mean that there were only 14 generations. Matthew is intending to communicate something with this. There were more that, there was more that happened in these periods of time. He is highlighting the 14 generations, and this isn't uncommon in genealogies. We can look at other scriptural accounts, other genealogies in the Old Testament, and see the parts that were skipped. Matthew's not being sneaky here. He's not trying to trick us, but he's understanding that his Jewish readers would have understood how he was connecting the dots. For Matthew, it seemed more important to write in 14s, so to speak, than it was to simply duplicate the genealogies that were publicly available and readily available to all. So, how do we understand then these numbers? Well, the number three, we've seen that. We understand, I think, it in a more full sense than even our Jewish uh, predecessors, but they understood three as the number of fulfillment. Uh, The three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, The three pilgrimage festivals that they would travel to each year. Uh, Three represented a number of fulfillment. But there are other numbers that represent this as well. And so another way of unpacking the 14. So we have three 14s, but then what do we do with 14s? Well, 314s are also 67s. So he's using number 3, but he's also bringing us to the number 7, which is probably the the most commonly used number in scripture for completeness or fulfillment. Why only 67s? Well, Matthew is showing his readers that Jesus is the 7th, 7. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has come before him. And so he's showing his readers, three groups of 14, that this is the fulfillment. And then he breaks it up, and he doesn't do this, but there are six in the seven, 42. All of these numbers we've seen in Revelation, and I'm not going back through all of these, because most of you were with us. And you know we've already looked at some of these numbers. But to show that six sevens is lacking. The number six is the number of man. It is lacking completeness, lacking fulfillment. And this is what history represented. The Christ did not come, and then Jesus was born, and he fulfills all that. All of these were, in a sense, pointing to. He is the Messiah. One more detail that drives this point home is the fact that David, in this list of forty-two, David is number fourteen. Jesus is the son of David. That was one of his promised titles. So David was promised a son who would reign on his throne forever of whose end there would be, there would be no end. And Jesus has now come as that promised descendant. Matthew wants his readers to see this clearly. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He begins in verse 1 stating this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that this is a true person who lived and descended according to what he describes here. This is not a fantasy, this is not a fable. His name is Jesus and he lived. The name Jesus was given to him not by his parents, but his parents were both told from an angel that this is what they were to name their son. The name Jesus is simply the Greek for the Hebrew Joshua. And the Hebrew Joshua means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. But unlike Joshua who came in military might to lead the people of Israel into the promised land and defeat those nations, Jesus came to save in a greater way. We read it this morning in Psalm 130. "'O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with Him is full redemption.' He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. And this means of salvation points to the second part of his name, which was really more of a title, but it's become his name, and that is Christ, the Anointed One, or in Hebrew, the Messiah. This real person, born as a Jew in the line of Abraham as a son of David, is the one who was promised from the beginning, the long-awaited Messiah has come. Now we'll talk more about the promise of the Messiah next week, but simply as a reminder, the people of God have been told that there would be one who would come and deliver them. And the promise traces its line all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve were promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so the people of God were anticipating that a Redeemer... And a helper was coming. But much like us, they began to look at their more immediate needs and situations, thinking that those were that which they needed to be saved from. Specifically, the fact that Rome was occupying their country and taxing them. And so they began to look for a Messiah who would deliver them from such. And we too have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap here. Some questions that we can ask ourselves. Are you most thankful your sins have been forgiven? Or that your favorite politician won an election? That's a question for your heart, by the way. And for mine. Are you grateful your name is in the book of life? Or that a certain law was passed? Are you hoping in the ultimate deliverance that Christ will bring in His return Or do you spend most of your time imagining your political persuasion growing and gaining power? Do you feel the weight of your own sin and repent? Or do you think mostly about the weight of losing your lifestyle, your freedoms, and the conveniences that you enjoy? I'm not suggesting that these matters are insignificant. They aren't. But I simply want to illustrate how fickle our hearts are that these are not the most significant issues that we face in this life. Just like the Jews to whom Matthew was writing, our hope is often misplaced. We want a Savior to deliver us from whatever tyranny we are worried about in the moment when the greatest tyranny that we need deliverance from is our own sin. And what if we were to lose everything? What if the other side, whatever that is, gains power? Will our redemption in Christ be worth less? Or what if we figured everything out? What if our party rose to dominance? What if we possessed all the right tools? Would we just use all that to live comfortably? Enjoying days of ease and neglect the needs of others around us? Our ideas of security are a vapor. It is all a facade. We are not to try and hold on to what is fading away. And folks, I say our side, whatever side that is, whatever that issue is, our hearts are all drawn to things that we put our hopes in. And for you, it may not be politics. It may be your bank account or your retirement. It may be your family and it appearing a certain way. It may be your job and your performance. It may be your education and your grades. But all of us are drawn to put our confidence in things that are fading away. That will not last. We must look to Christ who came in the flesh. A son of Abraham, the son of David. Just as was promised to redeem us from sin and death. He and what He has granted us is eternal, and the rest of this life is fading away. Our homes, our bodies, our investments, our achievements, our possessions, rust and moth are destroying all of this. We'll take none of it with us. So may we see the person in the work of Christ and believe what He has done for us in His death clinging to him for all that he is in our future and let this rest of this mortal life go. Not only do we see the person of Jesus in his name, his title, that he was a descent of the Jew in the kingly line of David, but we also see in Matthew's genealogy that the line is not one of pure pedigree. If you or I were planning history, we might think that we needed to keep the line of the king of kings pristine. But instead, we don't find that at all. We find in this list the names of people who themselves were in need of a Redeemer. None are righteous, not even one. Not Abraham, not David, not Mary. Now, you see Abraham and you think the father of the faith who trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or you think of David, the man after God's own heart. But as Paul Harvey would say, we all know the rest of the story, don't we? We all know that Abraham was a pagan worshiper that God chose, not because of any merit of his own, but because of his grace alone, that he poured it out on Abraham and called him out of the land of his fathers. And even after doing so, Abraham fell. He stumbled. How many times did he try and offer Sarah up as his sister instead of his wife? David infamously seduced another man's wife, and then to cover his sin, arranged for that man to be murdered. Now both of these did walk in faith and repentance despite their failings. But there are some in this list who were truly wicked. Ahaz is one of the names that we see here. He did despicable things according to 2 Kings 16 where we read, He sacrificed his son in the fire following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Manasseh also acted horribly as a leader. He's another name in this list. 2 Kings one nine. Manasseh led them astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. What a story. God drives the nations out, brings Israel in, and then one of the kings leads them into evil far greater than the nations that they had driven out. And so in this list includes sinners who trusted God, even though they failed miserably, and sinners who were wicked and that there is no evidence of repentance. There's another group within this list that's unexpected. There are a number of women in this list. Something we don't typically see in ancient Hebrew genealogies. We won't go through all the stories, but we went through Genesis. I keep saying recently, but... Recently we did revelations So Genesis was before that if you weren't here for that but Tamar's story yeah that was kind of a little awkward wasn't it for a church service on Sunday if you don't remember the details of that let's just say it was scandalous a bit what about Rahab she was a prostitute remember the story of the spies who were sent in she protected them Ruth Rahab and Bathsheba were all non-Jews they were all Gentiles They were outside the line of Israel. Bathsheba isn't even mentioned by name here. She is simply referred to as Uriah's wife. And to add to the curiosity of why these names are included, what about the names that aren't included? Why isn't Sarah here? What about Rebecca? How do we make sense of the unexpected names in this list and the lives they lived and the pedigree from which Jesus came? It's not a noble history It's more of an underdog story, isn't it? And yet, this is what was prophesied of the Messiah, that He would come in humility. It shows the humanity of Jesus. It shows the historicity of Jesus. But would any of us have arranged for Him to come in this way? Hendrickson and Kistemacher offer three conclusions from this history. One, they write, "...Jewish boasting about Abrahamic descent amounts to unjustifiable glorying in the flesh. It is foolish and wicked." Israel had no reason to be proud of itself. Salvation is not from below, from man. It is from above, from God. Second, Jesus is indeed the long-awaited one, sent by God for man's redemption, for it is he who fulfills the prophecy concerning Messiah's lowly origin. And third, this Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, not only of the Jews. There is indeed a wideness in God's mercy, Those who were destined to be saved through faith were to be drawn from every nation. And so part of the answer as to why these names are listed by Matthew is to show the bigness of God's plan of redemption, to put to shame worldly wisdom, and to magnify His inexhaustible grace in the coming of the Messiah. The list is not to look at and marvel at this incredible birth line but rather to see that Jesus came to save even the likes of Tamar and David and Rahab and Jeconiah and Ruth and Abraham and even his own mother Mary. Jesus came to save all who are his, rebels in the line and rebels from outside the line. His plan was for the nations, that every tribe and tongue would come to praise him. Knox Shamblin writes, Matthew shows that Christ uses His regal authority to oversee a saving mission to the Gentile nations. Gentiles united to Christ will themselves become the seed of Abraham and heirs of the covenantal promises. Every sordid deed and sinful practice to which this genealogy alludes served God's mysterious purpose. The sins are acknowledged so that the divine grace that forgives them might be magnified. Hear that. The sins are acknowledged so that the divine grace that forgives them might be magnified. Folks, this is what I want us to sink our teeth into this Advent season that God works in messes, that God works through messes, that God works in spite of messes to accomplish our redemption and all of His purposes. That means that the stuff that hurts, the stuff that you can't make sense of, the things that have left painful scars, the things that have altered your life, the things that may even have seemingly ruined your life, all of this will not undo His plan. It is a good plan. Let me say this clearly, though. I am not patting you on the head and saying these things don't matter. I'm not suggesting that your suffering doesn't matter. Suffering hurts. Suffering shatters. Suffering steals. You and I cannot make sense of suffering. Particularly personal suffering is the most perplexing. Why did God allow this to happen in my life? If God loved me, why didn't He stop this from happening to my child? Why won't God remove this from my life when I've asked so many times? Why won't God answer my prayer for this good thing? When I've asked of Him. We may know the theologically correct answers to the problem of suffering. Sin has broken our world. It's, been, it's, it's left a mess. Everything's been marred by sin. We know that. We remember the promise from Romans that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We know God is sovereign, that He is good, and that doesn't change regardless of our situation, but those truths, as assuring and strengthening at times as they may be, still don't make sense of suffering. Read the Psalms, and you will see over and over that while the writer praises and trusts God, he still has countless questions. He doesn't make sense of why the wicked prosper. He asks that question over and over again, He remains unsure countless times as to why God has yet to deliver him. And if you don't believe the psalmist, consider our Savior, who on the cross cried out to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? We are to cry out like the psalmist. We are to ask the tough questions. God is not afraid of our messes, and he works in spite of them. Here's what we know. God is near to the brokenhearted, Psalm thirty-four, eighteen. God heals the brokenhearted, Psalm one, forty-seven, three. Our Savior is acquainted with our griefs, Isaiah fifty-three. Jesus came as the suffering servant to lay His life down to die for us, John ten eighteen. He is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. And His Spirit lives within us to give us strength, Romans eight twenty six. While we may not be able to make sense of all that we are facing, we can say with the psalmist, let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise. The Savior who has come according to the flesh, as a person, in keeping with the promises foretold, will also keep the promises yet fulfilled. This is part of the reassurance that we have from looking back and seeing how Jesus fulfilled all of the promises of the one who was to come, and we remember that at the Advent season. Why? In part, so that we're reassured that he will also fulfill the promises yet to come. He will one day wipe away every tear so that there will be no more mourning. He will remove sin and Satan and death once and for all. His favor is for a lifetime, indeed for an eternity. He will lead us in green pastures and carry us to cool waters. Indeed, He is the living water who will quench our suffering and it will be no more. The God of this genealogy is our God. The sovereign one who loves us with an everlasting and unbreakable love. And so may we sing to God and to each other, joy to the world The Lord has come. No more let sins and sorrows grow. He has come to prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. He has come to make His blessings known far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Father, our lives are full of messes. Things that we cannot understand at all times or make sense of. Indeed, there is true suffering represented in this room here. We may not understand it, Lord, but we see who You are in the Scriptures. We see that You are the God who worked through this line to preserve the promise. You worked through people who failed and stumbled. You even worked through wicked men who did abominable things. You worked through that. To carry out your purpose, Lord, would you help us to see that you, the God of this genealogy, are our God. That you are at work in spite of our inability to make sense of what we're going through. And would you shore up our hope that as we walk through this Advent season, that we may look back and see that the one who answered and fulfilled all the promises will indeed fulfill all the promises yet to come. Strengthen our hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.